Good evening. Welcome to Christ Church Presbyterian. It's so wonderful to see you uh, this evening. Let us prepare our hearts to worship the living God. Please stand for our call to worship, which comes from Colossians chapter 3 and verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let us pray. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. O God, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And we ask, O God, that you would be pleased through word and sacrament to communicate Christ to us that we would feast upon him through faith, that you would build up our faith, that you would comfort our faith, that you would lead us to live lives that glorify you in every way. Thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your mercy. And may you pour out your grace and mercy afresh tonight as your word is proclaimed and the Lord's Supper is administered, and as we read your word and pray and confess, and may you receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let us sing our hymn of praise, uh, actually our psalm of praise, Psalm 99, The Lord God Reigns in Majesty, number 99b.
Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8, as we continue reading through uh, the book of Exodus in our evening services. Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8. Please hear the word of God. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Would you pray with me? Our blessed triune God, you are holy Holy, holy, seated on the throne of righteousness and judgment. Your law is a holy law, an expression of your holy character. And we have fallen immeasurably short of obeying your law. We've sinned against you in our thoughts, words, and deeds. We've not loved you with our whole heart or loved our neighbor as ourselves. Father, forgive us for our many sins. Have mercy upon us for Jesus' sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our psalm of the month, our new psalm of the month, is Psalm 118. Oh, thank the Lord for all His goodness. There are uh, lots of verses, and so uh, this evening we are going to sing verses 1 through 4 and verses 7 and 8. And uh, uh, Misha is going to uh, play the tune through one full time, and then we'll We'll sing together verse 1 after the introduction. Please stand as we sing.
of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You may have noticed as you looked at the information on Psalm 118a uh, that this uh, psalm is sung to the tune of Genevan 66. And one thing that uh, John Calvin and the Reformation in Geneva brought us was metrical psalm singing. Uh, so the congregational singing had really died out in the medieval Roman Catholic Church. The only ones that sang were the folks in the choir, and uh, you wouldn't have those unless you were in a cathedral-type setting. And uh, Luther and Calvin and others brought back into the church congregational singing and psalms set to music. And the psalm that we just sang, Psalm 118, would have been sung in Calvin's Geneva in French and to the same tune which, as you look there, was from the Genevan Psalter of 1551. And so for uh, almost 500 years, God's people had been singing uh, Psalm 118 uh, to this grand and majestic tune, which isn't always easy to sing on the first time around, though some of you have sung this before, uh, but we'll get the hang of it and add it to our repertoire in giving praise to God. Well, let us go to the Lord now in prayer. Let us pray. Oh God, we love to sing your praises. For you, you are the one true and living God, and there is no other. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth. You stretched out the heavens like a tent, and you made all things. The oceans, the lakes, the rivers, the mountains, the animals the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, all of them give testimony to your greatness and your power and your love and your wisdom. We give you praise, O oh God, for your acts of creation, your acts of providence. We thank you that you are carrying out your purpose. You surely do, as the psalmist says, all that pleases you, for you are God and you are working all things together for your glory and for the building up of your church around the world. Oh, Lord, sometimes this looks confusing to us because we sometimes see the evil triumph. We see the wicked rule. We see Christians persecuted all over the world, from China to North Africa to the Middle East. Even here in America, we see ostracism and persecution rising for those who hold to basic foundational truths of Christianity. We see the moral revolution and the sexual revolution uh, overwhelming our land, and we see Christians under uh, the heat uh, and pressure uh, of governments and agencies uh, seeking to uh, wreak havoc upon our faith. And Lord, we wonder, are you still there? Doubts creep into our mind, but Lord, we know that you are there and you are not silent. You speak to us from your word and by your spirit, and we trust in you. We trust in your promises that you are there and that you are working and you are on your throne. And so, Father, would you meet us in whatever difficulties we are facing, whatever circumstances are challenging us and bringing pressure or anxiety or worry and we pray, Lord, that we would cast our anxieties upon you, that we would trust you, that we would hear your words preached and come to the table and be reminded 
that Christ has died for our sins and we have been made right with you. And we are not our own, but we've been bought with a price and we are now your treasured possession. You sing over us in your love. You keep us. You work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. You build us up. You are doing all these things for your glory and all by your grace. We've earned none of it. We deserve nothing but your wrath and judgment, but you've given us grace and salvation. Oh, we love you, Lord, because you first loved us. We thank you for the amazing grace that you've lavished upon us. And even this evening, as we uh, consider your word from Ephesians chapter 2, that you would remind us of so many of those truths again that we were reminded of this morning, that we are no longer under sin, that we are no longer dead in our transgressions and sins, that we are no longer under the crushing demands of your law, that we are no longer under the kingdom of darkness, that uh, we are uh, no longer slaves, shackled to sin and to the world and to the flesh. But now we have been raised with Christ. We are alive in Him and justified and adopted and being sanctified. And one day we know we shall be glorified. You promise us this. And so, Lord, we believe this about ourselves and what you've done in us, to us, for your glory and all by your grace. And we know, Lord, that one day we shall be like Christ because we shall see Him. And we... look forward to that day, Lord. We joyfully anticipate that day. And we pray, Lord, that all of these things, what is true of us in our new identity as new creatures in Christ, would truly inform us and fuel us and motivate us to live the Christian life in a way that glorifies you, to put to death the remaining sin in us, and to conform our lives to the Word of God and to Christ as our example. Oh, Lord, would you continue to work this in us and apply these truths to our lives that we would commune with you in a healthy walk. And when we do sin, when we do give in to temptation, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, convict us and lead us uh, once again, ever again, to Christ and to his forgiveness and mercy, and that we wouldn't allow sins to grow and to gain strength and to gain patterns in our lives, but repent of them and turn from them and remember to keep our eyes fixed on Christ who is at your right hand. Father, we do pray this evening that you would continue to be with all of those who are going through difficulties with their health or with family members or with marriages or with family, Lord, whatever it may be, with work. We pray that you would draw near and grant comfort and grace and wisdom uh, that we would be able to serve you as salt and light uh, in this world, uh, showing others the love uh, and truth of Christ uh, through uh, the love that we show to them. Uh, Father, thank you so much for hearing our prayers. Thank you for all the blessings you've given to us. And now we give back to you the first fruits uh, of our earnings uh, for the building up of your church here in Charleston and around the world. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.
Beloved, would you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, as we continue in our study of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. And um, I was talking to my, uh, my dear mother uh, about this series. She was telling me that in her, in her OPC church in Bluffton, she's hearing a sermon series on Ephesians tonight. And so I said, oh, I'm preaching from Ephesians tonight. And I'm preaching on the five solas of the Reformation. And uh, she said, what are those? I said, Mom, you were a Lutheran your whole life. How can you say that? How can you say you don't know? And she said, well, I've learned more about Lutheranism and the Reformation since being a Presbyterian than I learned being a Lutheran all those years. Now, I don't know what to say about that. Um, I love my Lutheran heritage, and I know lots of very proud uh, Lutherans, like I know a lot of very proud Presbyterians that love their heritage. Uh, but this is at the very, the very center of it. Um, and we're in Ephesians 2 tonight looking at uh, sola gratia, or by grace alone. And I, I also want to say, before we get started tonight, um, how, what a blessing it is to see uh, such a wonderful attendance tonight at, at evening worship. The Lord has continued to grow our evening worship service, and uh, that's a great blessing uh, because I know that more and more of our members are just getting more and more of Christ you're getting more and more of Christ. You're getting more of His truth. You're getting more of His means of grace. You're getting more fellowship. You're just getting more. And that is a huge blessing for God's people and for this church. Uh, because why only get 52 sermons a year when you get 104? Uh, why only get 52 Lord's Suppers when you can get 104? Um, why not bookend the day with worship so that your day begins with worship and ends with worship and everything in between is leading up uh, to that and so to keep that focus. So evening worship is one of the great blessings of the church. And I'd say these days in the PCA, we probably have about 15% of PCA churches that have evening worship anymore. Uh, didn't used to be like that 20, 30 years ago, but uh, more consumerism and sports and everything else has crept in and has just eradicated the Sabbath day, which is a part of our confession, a part of what we believe as Reformed Presbyterians. It's such a blessing. Uh, and so I'm so glad to see you all here tonight. Uh, and uh, we know that some can't make it for providential reasons, but what a blessing uh, to be here together. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word in Ephesians chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? O Lord, would you teach us? O Lord, would you humble us? O Lord, would you lead us and guide us and grant us your wisdom by your spirit that we would embrace and believe and respond by faith to all that is found here in your word? And would you, alas, once again, lead us to Christ? For he alone is our life and the one through whom we receive your saving grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our series in the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, once again, the Reformers weren't sort of running down uh, the dusty streets of Geneva or Wittenberg with a big flag with the five solas sort of emblazoned on them. Uh, no, these are things that much later on, uh, thinkers and theologians sort of came up with as sort of marks uh, of the Protestant Reformation, which are very important to, to focus on uh, and to think about when we think about the Protestant Reformation. What were the main teachings that came forth out of the Protestant Reformation? There are so many more than these, but these are very important ones. Uh, and this was, uh, of course, in the Protestant Reformation during an age when the Roman Catholic Church had become corrupted by extreme wealth and greed, political power, and erroneous views of Scripture and tradition. And when all these things uh, sort of came to the surface because of courageous reformers that were speaking out against these things, uh, a movement uh, started uh, to go back to the sources, ad fontes, back to the fount of the truth. Now, this was happening in the Renaissance in the wider culture as well, where people were wanting to go back to the original sources of various writings and manuscripts and literature. But this was certainly true of, of, of Erasmus and other scholars wanting to go back to the original sources of the Greek and Hebrew, um, uh, Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament in order to get back to the truth, the unadulterated word of the living God and not just the tradition which had grown all around it where there was so much superstition. And so it was embraced that it is through the simple teaching and exposition of the Bible at the local church level that the light of the gospel would shine forth brighter than it, than it ever would otherwise. And it was doing that more so than in the centuries past, bringing salvation and biblical reform to thousands of individuals and families and churches all over Western Europe. And so last time we were together, we looked at sola scriptura, sola scriptura or scripture alone. Uh, that is that God's word is found in the Bible and is alone authoritative for life and faith. The Bible is alone authoritative for life and faith because God's word is inspired or God breathed inerrant or without error, and sufficient, namely it's really all we need, we as his believing people ought to be actively committed to the word of God personally in our families and in our congregation. 
the Word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is, is God-breathed. It's, it's inspired by God and, and, and useful for, uh, for uh, faith and life and good works. John 17, 17, Jesus prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy what? Thy Word is truth. 1 Peter 1, 23, through chapter 2 and verse 2, the, the Word of God is, uh, lasts forever. It's not like the grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. The Word of God lasts forever. And, and the Word of God is that nourishing milk that we grow on. Uh, and in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing what? By the Word of Christ. Sola Scriptura. Uh, this evening we're looking at sola gratia, and subsequent weeks we'll look at solus Christus, that we're saved by Christ alone. There are not many ways to heaven. He's the unique Savior of the world. Sola fide, we're saved by faith alone and not by works. Soli Deo Gloria. All of this is for the glory of God alone. We're going to look at these over the next few weeks, God willing. But let's turn now to our text, a passage of Scripture that clearly sets forth the grace of God, that, that God has a gracious plan of salvation. And here we see the amazing put back into grace, which has often been misunderstood in ages past and present. Um, I came to be reformed uh, when I read a book by uh, Mike Horton called Putting Amazing Back Into Grace. It's, a, it's really a wonderful title because Grace really isn't that amazing if you're a part of your own salvation, if you've helped to earn it. If God is your co-pilot, like the bumper sticker says, and you are sort of doing salvation by cooperation, then grace really isn't that amazing. It's sort of God gives me a little help. You know, God helps those who help themselves. Where is that in my Bible? Uh, it's not in your Bible. That's not in your Bible. We understand what people mean by that, but that's not salvation, that God helps those who help themselves. No, salvation is by grace alone, nothing added. It's not, salvation isn't, uh, you know, halfway grace, halfway you. It's not mostly grace and just a little bit of you. It's all of grace, completely. And so we're going to think about that this evening uh, for a few uh, moments before we come to the Lord's table. Uh, the first point is this, if you're taking notes. Uh, the, the depravity of man, uh, it's worse than you think. The depravity of man, it is worse than you think. You say, Pastor, I know I'm really bad. I know I'm really sinful. Well, you really don't know how bad you are, nor do I. We are so sinful when we put ourselves up against the, the, the truth and the holiness of God and His law, when we think about the fact that not for one second of our lives have we ever loved God with our whole heart, mind, and strength or loved our neighbor as ourselves ever. And you start thinking about not only all the things that we've done in the past to sin against God and our neighbor and His law, but all the things we haven't done that we should have done, right? Our sins are not only composed of sins of commission, but sins of what? Omission, the things we haven't done. So when you think about that, 
the, the list starts getting very long about our sins and our guilt before a holy God. But we see this depravity of man. It's much worse than you think. It's much, wor- much worse than I think. Again, many people have a very soft and casual view of sin and its miserable consequences. Mankind is not just infected with a little spiritual head cold, or as I mentioned this morning, with the spiritual sniffles when it comes to sin. Uh, We are not a little spiritually sick with mostly good moral healthiness in us. You know, we're not essentially good with a few mistakes here and there. No, this is not what God's Word teaches. It teaches that mankind is spiritually dead, totally depraved, and spiritually incapable of loving God on our own. How bad is it? Well, look at verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of Adam falling into sin, choosing rebellion instead of obedience. And in Romans 5, we learn that the effects of Adam's sin were not simply personal. Rather, Adam, being the God-ordained representative of all of humanity, brought sin and death into the world for all of his posterity. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as though one man, through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Romans 5.18, so then, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. What else do we learn about this? Well, David, David in Psalm 51 writes this, quote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. In sin my mother conceived me. In other words, when conception took place, there is a soul there, and that soul is corrupted by sin. At the very time of conception, there is sin, the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall. Mankind in and of himself is spiritually lifeless, dead, a veritable spiritual corpse when it comes to pleasing God. This is the picture that Paul, the inspired Apostle Paul, wants us to have in mind as we think about our life without grace, our life on our own. We are born into this world with no natural inclination to love and obey God. There may be reasons why someone who doesn't have true faith in Christ wants to be connected, for instance, to the people of God or to have relationships or to not uh, act in certain ways. But there's no natural inclination in us to love and to obey God. Our hearts are totally corrupt and hostile towards God, unable to love God due to the bondage of our sinful nature and the darkness of our understanding. We saw that uh, this morning. Uh, Let's read a couple of verses to reinforce this miserable state of mankind. Again, we go to Romans chapter 3 in verses 10 through 12. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Talk about redundancy there. It's not really redundancy. Every word is the word of God. But the emphasis 
over and over, not even one. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. Romans 8, 6 through 8. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law uh, or God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They can't do it because of depravity. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or understood. And so we learn from these verses that mankind is dead in sin and in need of an external work of grace, something outside of ourselves. We cannot So much of the New Age religion, the sort of Oprah high priestess religion is find truth within, find God within. But salvation doesn't come from within, it comes from without, it's external. We cannot save ourselves, we cannot find salvation in ourselves, we cannot rescue ourselves. I was once teaching on this doctrine of man's depravity and utter inability and a person said this, oh, so it's like a person who is at the bottom of a 10,000-foot well with no way out. And I responded by saying this, well, that's sort of the picture. That's sort of the picture. Um, there's something we need to add to this, uh, that the person is at the bottom of the 10,000-foot well, and he is dead. That's a better picture. They're dead. They're just dead down there. That is our situation. That is our condition according to Scripture. And it is both the sin of Adam and our own sin that has assigned us to this awful human condition. Some people like to give the life preserver illustration. Oh, my life, I was... I was uh, an unbeliever, and I was living in sin, and it was like I was in the ocean. I was flailing around, and, and, and my friend Bob, my neighbor, sent me a life preserver, and I grabbed onto it, and he pulled me in to the boat. Well, here's the thing. Dead people don't grab onto life preservers. There's no life in us. There's no life in us. Things are worse than many think. But lest you get worried, it gets worse. There's more. We are not only by nature dead in our sins, we are also indulgent in those sins. Verses 2 and 3. Look there with me. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And by the way, just take note there, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. This is Romans 8 sort of language again in terms of putting to death the deeds of the body, the desires, the sins, the remaining sins. It's what we are called to do as Christians, but... As a non-Christian, you are under the dominion of these things and just doing them. 
It's not as though we are passively dead in sin. No, we are like zombies who are dead but actually doing stuff. Um, it's with great zeal that we indulge ourselves in the very things that are an affront to God's standards as non-Christians. Mankind is consumed with loving self, creating alternative gods that suit their lifestyles and increasingly seeking the fleeting pleasures of this world and of the flesh. We have the multi-billion dollar porn industry that's evidence of this. We have the sexual revolution, the moral revolution. We have all the entertainment and leisure and all the idolatry of the American culture, which, which gives evidence of this. Is mankind's condition worse than you thought? Well, there's more. Mankind is not only born with a depraved and fallen nature and a heart uh, that left on its own loves and indulges in sin, but is also called an object of divine wrath. Look at me at verse 3 again. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are not naturally good and under God's sort of pleasure like a benevolent grandfather who doesn't really care how his grandkids are acting. He's a holy God and we are naturally under his wrath. Objects of his wrath. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, states this, quote, The scriptures do indeed teach the doctrine of inherent hereditary depravity. And that depravity is of the nature of sin and therefore justly exposes us to the divine displeasure. So this is what our condition is. This is our natural state. This is who Paul says they once were so they can understand who they now are. They, before they knew Christ, we, before we know, knew Christ, or perhaps some may even right now still be in this state. In our natural condition, we are a spiritually dead, stinking corpse who loves sin and is worthy of divine displeasure. Nothing in my hand I bring. Well, we actually do bring a lot. We bring a lot of sin. We bring a lot of guilt when we come to the cross. Do you now understand the Bible's description of mankind? Is it worse than you thought? What if this chapter ended here? What if this was the end of the story? It'd be a terrible place to stop. What if God in his own sovereign and just will decided to let all of us perish in our sin all to the praise of his glorious justice? Because he could have done that justly. After all, nothing in us warranted anything but his judgment and wrath. But uh, before we despair... Let's consider two of the greatest words in the Bible in verse 4. Look there with me. But God. While all these things are true of us, but God. Though mankind has fallen into a state of shameful rebellion towards God, indulged in flagrant and defiant sin against God, and made themselves worthy of just condemnation and wrath, 
our passage says in verses 4 and 5, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his, notice there, great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice all of the descriptive words in the passage. Rich, great, love. Just as our natural position is worse than one thinks, God's grace is more amazing than one can imagine. And it's precisely our lack of understanding concerning the depravity of mankind that makes so many evangelicals actually so unimpressed with the grace of God. It doesn't strike one uh, with such uh, enormity and weightiness and, and, and gravitas because if sin is not that big of a deal and really being saved is just kind of being saved, saved from uh, not being centered in life or being saved from a lack of success in life and and being rescued unto a life of prosperity or something like this, then grace really isn't that amazing. And if mankind is capable of initiating a relationship with God out of his own power and moral goodness and ability, then God's grace becomes a mere addition to our own goodness. It becomes a second life preserver added to the one I already had within myself. But notice with me a few characteristics of God's free grace in verses 4 through 9, seeing why God's grace is more amazing than we might think. First of all, in verse 4, we see that God's grace is free, abounding, and eternal. God's grace is free. Nothing outside, this is important, nothing outside of God has constrained coerced or obligated him to demonstrate his love and mercy. Nothing outside of himself has coerced him or constrained him or obligated him. His grace flows from his self-determined, self-motivated, sovereign will and purpose. In other words, there was no good thing in us that moved him to save us. Secondly, God's grace is abounding. There's no lack of abundance or richness when it comes to God's grace. We are saved, it says in Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, according to the riches of his grace, which he, now listen, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We do not serve a miserly God. We serve a God who lavishes His grace upon us, lavishes it upon us in all wisdom and insight. God's grace is not only free, it's not only abounding, it's also eternal. Although not explicitly stated in our text, it is implied that God's love is eternal. How so? His plan of redeeming a people was decreed or purposed from eternity past. God's love and affection was placed upon those whom he would save even before time began. We see this earlier on in the book 
in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Look there with me, Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. He writes there, Just as He chose us in Him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. God's grace is free, it's abounding, it's eternal. It's all flowing from His sublime plan to redeem a people for His own matchless glory. We notice also in verse 5 that God's grace is life-giving. Here we have the doctrine of regeneration before us, that is the teaching from Scripture that God, by His sovereign grace, gives spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Uh, Remember what we learned from verses 1 through 3. We were dead, but, verse 5 says, God made us alive. Colossians 2.13, God made you alive. 1 Peter 1.3, God caused us to be born again, to give us life. John 1.12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now listen, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Again, that's John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It is by God's grace that we are saved. We are made alive in Him. We were dead. We have not added anything to this at all. You remember the story of Lazarus. We basically are Lazaruses who were in the tomb. In the King James, it said, By this time, Lazarus stinketh. He stunketh because... He was in the tomb for four days. And when you're in the tomb for four days, your body stinketh, right? What happens when Jesus comes? He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, by the way, Lazarus didn't say, I don't know if I want to do that. This is my decision. No, Lazarus came forth because Christ, the Son of God, called him forth. And he was dead And then he became alive and he came to Jesus. And the grave clothes came off. And Lazarus was with his Savior. This is what happens spiritually to every person who is a Christian, born again. We were dead. By God's grace, the gospel uh, was preached. The Spirit of God uh, used it. It's the operative power of God to bring that person into union with the risen Christ And at that moment of union, all these glorious things happened. You receive the gift of faith. You're born again. You're justified. You're adopted into God's family. You're you're in a process that has begun called sanctification. And you are guaranteed eternal life and glorification. That happens at the moment you're brought into union with Christ and made alive in Him. And that brings us to the next point, is that God's grace unites us to Christ. God's grace unites us to Christ. We don't have time to deal with all of this at this time. We've been considering it, of course, a lot in our Roman study. But notice with me in verses 5 through 7, the language which speaks of those whom God makes alive. It says that they are made alive together with Christ. 
It says they are raised up with Christ. And it says they are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are united to him. And so as he is in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, we too mysteriously, mystically are there with him because we are united to him. We get a taste of it now. One day we will know it in its fullness. The nature of this union is spiritual, and it simply means that what Christ did as our representative, we did, and thus are considered just and righteous before God, justified because of our union with Jesus. And so, if you are in Christ today, you have not only been born again by His Spirit, but you have been, of course, uh, by grace, been united to Christ. You would not be born again unless you were united to Christ. This mystical union or connection to Christ is eternally inextricable. It can never be broken. Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, while our natural condition might be worse than we think, God's grace is more amazing than we might think. It is eternal, free, abounding, life-giving, Christ-uniting, and that's not all. It's received by faith. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me, familiar verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the instrument through which we receive God's grace. It's faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The, the exercising of faith in terms of your salvation is not a work that makes you right with God. The only foundation upon which your salvation stands is the foundation of Christ, His shed blood, His righteousness. We add nothing to it. Faith itself is a gift. Faith is not something we're born with and that we sort of activate one day. And then we sort of say, well, I expressed faith. That was my work. No. Regeneration comes before faith, not after faith. Regeneration precedes faith, as it were. So, finally, God's grace is powerful and sanctifying. Look at verse 10 with me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Notice again that union with Christ language. Created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is no room for boasting here. No room for boasting. Even the works in which we walk in are ordained by God. He gives us the privilege of walking in those and honoring Him, and glorifying Him in those works. And these works are not simply sort of formal religious works, obviously. They're the works that you carry out in your various vocations, whatever it is uh, that you do. As you carry out your callings, your vocations that the Lord has given to you, you honor Him and glorify Him and do these good works unto His glory. And God has prepared these things for you even before Him. This is why God has brought you to himself in Christ, that you would serve him in this way. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And of course, God's Spirit empowers you to do these good works. Beloved, it's all of grace. 
salvation is by grace. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And we have nothing to boast in except the cross, except in what Christ has done for us. This is the amazing grace of God. And at Christ Church, we always want to have the amazing grace of God set forth, proclaiming from the rooftops that it's all of grace. What this does, dear ones, is it keeps us in a place of humility. We do not walk in self-righteousness because we realize that we would not be walking at all with God apart from His what? His grace. His grace. I may have told this story a few years ago, but when uh, I was serving uh, in my former congregation uh, for 10 years, uh, Grace Presbyterian Church. Interestingly, our church was called Grace Presbyterian Church, and then the neighborhood we lived in was called Grace Lake Neighborhood, so we had grace all over the place. Um, and uh, it was just, I had nothing to do with the naming of those, either one of those. But uh, anyway, I remember one day I was sitting uh, in my study, my sort of makeshift study in this, this old uh, uh, supermarket sort of slash sanctuary that we were <laughs> meeting in at, at the time before we built our, our building. And this man came in, and we had these doors that would go, you know, like the supermarket doors. And that was terrible during worship because every time someone came in late, it was like, and every head would turn and look and see who was coming in. And uh, it was very distracting. And sometimes it would happen over and over again, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, don't mean to gripe or anything. Um, but there was this man who came in. I heard the doors open, and it was the middle of the day. And I'm like, okay, I wonder who this is. And uh, this guy kind of knocked on my door, said, hey, pastor, can I, uh, can I speak with you for a few minutes? I'm like, yeah, sure, I got nothing to do. Come, come sit down, you know. <laughs> um, so, he, so he sits down, and he says, um, Grace Church. I'm like, yeah. He's like, I was driving by, and I saw it on the sign. I'm like, yeah, it's good, isn't it? He goes, yeah, it's good. And I'm like, he said, uh, I really like the name. I said, I do too, you know. And uh, he said, I've become a Christian recently. I said, really? I kind of sat up in my chair and said, tell me about that. And he told me his testimony and he said, uh, you know, it's just been recently though that I've sort of understood that grace isn't like a a cooperation thing. I, I sort of thought, you know, from the experience I had and the teaching I had that, that it was sort of me, you know, coming to the Lord and doing it in my own volition and my own strength. And, and uh, I've been doing some reading lately and realizing that uh, it's not that way, is it? I said, no, it's not. And uh, he said, why don't you share with me, Pastor, about what you think grace is? So I, I shared with him, you know, reformed view of grace. And uh, he said, you know, that really is amazing, isn't it? Because... We can do nothing. God does it all. And that means that if we are a part of getting ourselves saved with the help of God, then we can also get ourselves what? Unsaved. That is something that troubles a lot of Christians because they think, well, if I am a part of getting myself saved and I partnered with God for my salvation, I suppose it is possible then for me to lose my salvation if I do something that whatever, whatever it may be. Well, this is the wonderful thing about grace. 
is it leads you all the way home. It doesn't lead you halfway. And we know that it leads us all the way home because Christ our Savior, the one through, to whom we are united, is home. He's there. And you know, Jesus, the God-man, wasn't there until he went there. Write that down and give me credit. <laughs> he wasn't there until he went there because Christ, remember, was born of the Virgin Mary and he lived on this earth as the God-man and, and Christ in his human nature had never been to heaven before. But after he accomplished our redemption, God vindicated him and exalted him and gave him all authority and power and seated him on the right hand of God. And he did all of that for you and for me as our representative. And so his place in heaven means that our place, his secure place in heaven, means that we have a secure place in heaven as secure as his is because we are in him. And that's what Paul means here when he says, if you look then in, in chapter 2, verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that, now here's future grace. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He has raised us up with Christ, not only to rescue us from our sins, to save us, but to shower us with grace for eternity. He says, I saved you so I can just keep lavishing grace upon you forever and ever and ever. That's the God you serve, dear ones. A God of grace, immeasurable, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. This is the grace in Christ that will lead you home. And this table reinforces this to us. That as pilgrims on the way, Christ is with us. He gives us himself. He's feeding us. He's nourishing our faith. And he's leading us to the promised land. He's leading us home to that better country where he is and where we will be with him forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, for, for sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone and not by our works, not by our our help, our cooperation, our, our deeds, our good intentions. We're saved solely by your grace through faith in Christ and all to the praise of your glorious grace. We worship and adore you. We give you thanks, O oh Lord. And may this grace fill our hearts and motivate us unto works of obedience, not because what Christ has done is lacking, but because it's not lacking and we are seeking to honor and glorify you with our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll uh, turn uh, with me in your hymnals to our hymn of response, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Number 429, number 429. Please stand as we sing.
amen. You may be seated. We are debtors to grace, but we can't pay back the debt. 